0: Welcome back to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria. We're so happy to be with you again this week. We are continuing our conversation on the little catechism of the act of oblation, St. Therese of the child Jesus and the Holy Face. This was her personal act of oblation, of sacrifice to our Lord. And in uh, studio with me this week, as she is each week, except for last week, Francis. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I missed you too, Mark.
0: <laughs> I'm this glad is... to be
1: back with you and the Radio Maria listening audience. It's a joy.
0: Yeah, it, it's great. I uh I struggled through last week. Uh <laughs> right. on my own. But um I I hope it uh I hope it was beneficial to our listeners. Um this is a great uh work that we're going through, Francis. I know you agree you're Uh, I think much more familiar with Therese uh, than I am myself, certainly with this act of oblation. And so it's great to have you back in studio this week, and I look forward to our conversation. Uh, But we're going to begin, as we do each week, by turning ourselves to the Lord, turning our face to the Lord, and begging Him for both His mercy and His sending of His Holy Spirit as we reflect on these wonderful words from St. Therese of Lisieux. Francis, would you lead us in prayer?
1: Well, I picked a special prayer uh, in honor of St. Albert of Jerusalem. And you're going to be like, well, what's the connection with Therese and her act of oblation? Well, it's about making a perfect act of love. And one perfect act of love is worth more than many other charitable works. So pure love is so important. And St. Albert of Jerusalem His feast day for the Carmelite order is tomorrow, September the 17th. And so um, he's the bishop and the lawgiver of Carmel. He wrote our rule. It's called the Rule of St. Albert. And so I thought we would honor him and then get into the prayer um, discussion about uh, Therese's act of oblation. So let us get it recollected and let us sign ourselves in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord God, through St. Albert of Jerusalem, you have given us a rule of life according to your gospel to help us attain perfect love. Through his prayers, may we always live in allegiance to Jesus Christ and serve faithfully until death, him who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
0: Well, the um, the first week, Francis, you and I were together. We read the entire act of oblation. Uh, we won't go through that again because it is somewhat lengthy. Uh, but I think it's important that we had that grounding. And if you haven't uh, gotten a copy of it yet, dear listener, then perhaps uh, getting a source document for it, you certainly can purchased the little catechism of the act of oblation which has a version of the act in it this is from the Sophia institute press um, conversely you could buy the story of a soul therese's uh, own autobiography uh, from ics and that has the act of oblation in it and then there's one other source you pointed out to me, Francis, and that's from her Book of Prayers, right? Yes,
1: and her Book of Prayers, which is also an ICS publication. Um, they have that in there with a great, uh, uh, a lot of footnotes that give a shed a lot of light on the prayer and the circumstances in which it was written. So uh, yeah. I, I encourage you to seek that out if this event is of interest to you. And if you just go online and do a search, for the Merciful Act of Oblation of St. Therese. Uh, there are many links to that wonderful prayer, and it's actually a highly indulgence prayer. If you pray it every day for a month, I think you get a plenary indulgence, so um, if I remember that correctly. And there's a, a couple paragraphs near the end where they, those are the two paragraphs that they want you to
0: really <laughs> make sure you pray. Focus on, right. Um, Maybe before we conclude, we'll read just those two paragraphs. Maybe at the end we can do that. But let's pick up on uh, our discussion around this. And again, using the little catechism that I mentioned from Sophia Press, which does a wonderful job initially by taking you through a series of questions. I did this, uh, uh, well, Francis and I did it in the opening week, and then I did it again last uh, um, week when... when. Uh, I was um, covering that alone and it does um, a wonderful job as I say of going through the language and explaining some of uh, what might be a bit off-putting terminology like Holocaust and martyrdom and uh, these kinds of uh, terms that for our modern ears may be a bit challenging. The Catechism explains uh, why Therese used those words, albeit in French, but they're the same in translation. Uh, very deliberately and uh, so it's good to have that grounding today though we're going to have a conversation um, as regards what you should be thinking about after the act of oblation once you've begun to pray it
1: right what are your duties now what what are your responsibilities
0: (laughs) right and how do we dispose ourselves in fact turning to the first item in our conversation this evening what is the interior disposition essential in order to live as a fervent victim of love. Victim was one of those other words. What is it that Therese says, Francis, is the disposition? She means, of course, the disposition of our heart that is necessary to live this fervent victim of love.
1: She says the desire alone, and that's an important word here the desire, because she, she talks about that later. The desire alone to be victim will suffice. A sincere and persevering desire sustained by the firm hope of obtaining from the good God, together with a full effusion of his love, all the graces necessary to return him love for love. Now, I have to interject. We, we've heard that phrase, return love for love,
0: mm-hmm. from who?
1: St. Teresa Margaret Ruddy of the Sacred Heart, which right. we did an extended series on her. Yeah. But I'm going to go on in the words of St. Therese. It is in this sense... That the victim of love repeats with saint therese in her act of oblation and these are this is her quote i am certain that you will hearken to my desires she's speaking to the lord my god i know it the more you will to give the more you make us desire so in this sense the desire to offer herself was enough because she's counting on the good lord to fulfill her desire So that's where we start. So, so that's not unobtainable. We can all do that, and then so we respond in the way that we can, and so that will develop as we grow spiritually. It will grow deeper as well.
0: Right, and and not to recover all of the ground from the last uh, conversation, or in that case, a monologue, since it was me, (laughs) Um, but. Uh, just to point out here, this is a victim of love, not a victim of justice. This isn't an unwilling victim. In other words, this is a very willing victim. Uh, Therese has given herself over quite willingly to the work that the Father wants to do within her, that the ultimately the Holy Spirit will do within her. This uh, Holocaust, this uh, consuming, God is a consuming fire. We know this from Hebrews and from the Old Testament. And so she's willingly availed herself. That's the disposition uh, that Francis is talking about.
1: And this was really, I think, kind of revolutionary because all the nuns around her were offering themselves as a victim soul of divine justice. So when she came up with this idea of offering herself to merciful love i mean she's like thinking you know god's love is all pent up inside of him and you know he just he wants people to accept his love and so she's going to stand in the gap to do that by offering herself as a victim to merciful love and at first you know people were like kind of questioning well how can you do this you know but then you know uh through the prayer and through explaining it to those around her, you know, they, they came to an understanding and really embracing it. And so, you know, now the whole world uh, that that sees this prayer, that that understands the prayer, uh, they want to join in with Trez, and that's why she's praying for a legion of souls to join her. Um, and the Pope confirms that when he canonized her, so I'm getting ahead of myself. No, but. <laughs> right.
0: Well, so what is our work in this? Or we might ask, what was Therese's work? What was her active cooperation with merciful love? If we're going to make the act, and we're going, as Francis encouraged us, to pray this act with some consistency, certainly not less than 30 days uh, would be good. Therese herself said there were remarkable graces that she was uh, blessed with within the first 30 days of beginning to pray this. If we're going to do it, what exactly are we doing Um, The soul, the victim of love, has actually two tasks to fulfill. One of these is very active, the other is passive. Now, for us as Carmelites, Francis, we understand this (laughs) idea very very clearly, don't we? There are those things we have a responsibility to do, uh, in this case, in uh, the active, what John of the Cross refers to as the night of sense and the night of spirit. We have to deny ourselves. We have to detach from worldly things. We have to actively um, uh, sacrifice, mortify, if you will, those things that are distractions. In the spiritual night, we have the active responsibility of uh, not becoming dependent on the blessings that God gives us or overly attached to uh, phenomenon and so forth. Looking or religious for objects. Yeah. <laughs>
1: that too. Not, a... not
0: being attached to any of those things. That's our active night. And here again, uh, the active and the passive are, are necessary for our prayer life. What does she say is the first duty to aim at for this ever-increasing uh, striving in um, in the act of oblation?
1: And that is to grow in humility. humility. And if we remember from St. Teresa of Avila, um, truth is humility. Humility is truth. Right. Knowing who we are in relationship to God, that is the truth. And so... Uh, Therese, of course, this is part of her little way to humble yourself, to not depend on yourself, to throw everything on the heart of God, uh, completely empty of confidence in yourself, but throwing your full confidence in the Lord. So, and, and you're not turning to others, you're you know, your focus is on the Lord. And, um, you know, it's a beautiful thing because she's, she's saying one of her quotes, uh, from Teresa's, we must consent to remain always poor and without strength. And, and this is poor in, in that we are dependent on God. She's not talking about you know your finances here. Yeah, although that may be part, it might of, be it. part of it. Uh, right. But the thing is to be poor so that you're not attached to anything, anyone, any ideas, your own ideas.
0: <laughs> poor in spirit. Poor in spirit. Poor in spirit exactly. And then she
1: goes on, there lies the difficulty for where shall be found the truly poor in spirit? He must be sought afar off, that is to say, in lowliness, in nothingness.
0: Again, these are demanding terms for us, but we have to. we have to take time with this prayer. We have to meditate on it. We have to understand it. The truth, as Francis pointed out so well, Of the humility of our humility before God is that we are completely dependent creatures and so the active part as we described is uh, availing ourselves of uh, the mortification detachment and so forth in humility we accept that we are completely dependent therefore on God now, in order to enjoy the treasures of this merciful love, St. Therese would say, we must humble ourselves, we must acknowledge our nothingness, and that is what many souls are not willing to do.
1: Right, so many are attached to their own ideas or how things they ought to go, or they have false expectations of what God should do, you know, kind of telling God what to do. So,
0: And we uh, can tell, Francis, when we're not practicing this by Our loss of peace, our loss of tranquility, our loss of stability, Mm -hmm. right? Doesn't mean that things aren't going to go wrong in our life. There's always the eccentricities of life that we have to deal with. Uh, But it is accepting all of that and recognizing that God is working through that. As long as we're continually in a state of prayer. What's the second duty for the soul who wishes to avail themselves of this Mm -hmm. abandonment, this oblation to divine love?
1: Well this is a big theme um in the little wave Therese. it's self abandonment so self abandonment of the little child and think of this the little child who sleeps in her father's arms without any fear so even if the, you were in a tough situation you know this is like just think of a baby sleeping in the father's arms and father's dealing with the tough situation the baby is just perfectly asleep just really trusting that it's all going to be handled and so this attitude of spiritual childhood deserves the name of victim because nothing so completely immolates self in man as to become sincerely little because our normal our normal uh, thing is to to make ourselves big and make everything count on our effort uh, so
0: take control of things yeah. make things turn out the way we want even Asking God to make things turn out the way we want, yeah. right?
1: But St. Teresh, you know, she's not afraid to affirm that this abandonment alone really surrenders the soul into the arms of Jesus. And when we think of the arms of Jesus, that was her elevator, the divine elevator where Jesus' arms stooped down to reach where we're at in our misery, and he lifts us up.
0: And it is only in this way that his love to act within us according to... The full extent of his force, that's why in her challenge to the soul, weaker than her own, she confidently asserts that it will receive favors still greater than those showered on her. She's speaking about herself, provided that the soul abandon herself or himself with the full confidence in the infinite mercy of God. So as Francis was saying, this abandonment leads to, can lead to, some trepidation, some concern, some worry about our condition in life, our status, our our security and so forth. Therese had moved beyond all of that. She'd given all of that up. She had truly abandoned herself to God. Now, she even acknowledges there would be souls after her who would practice this act of abandonment even more purely than she did. And to the extent that they did, they would see gifts showered on them even greater than those which Therese received. And of course, we know about the gifts Therese received. We're talking about her today. We're we're, uh, reflecting on the words of this great saint of the 20th century, perhaps the best-known saint of the 20th century, uh, who continues to bless us today in so many ways. But she herself contends that to the degree that future saints might abandon themselves to this merciful love, they too will experience, and perhaps even in greater capacity, uh, these gifts.
1: You know, Mark, um, there are some obstacles that we have to overcome. So maybe you could address... Uh, what some of these obstacles are?
0: Well, they're outlined uh, uh, on some level in one of our favorite books. I know one of yours, Francis. Mine as well, "Imitation of Christ" by um, De Kempis, Thomas de Kempis, and uh, it replies to Saint Therese uh, this way: "So soon as a man seeketh himself, doth he fall away from love." This is right out of the "Imitation of Christ," uh, chapters three, five, and seven in Book One, and it talks about. Seeking self as opposed to seeking God in all of the circumstances of our life. To the degree that we cannot get past this seeking of self, even in our spiritual journey. This is where the passive element comes in that we talked about and St. John of the Cross. And of course, Therese, who was a daughter of St. John of the Cross in many ways, a spiritual daughter, understood this very well. The passive element is that which we cannot deal with ourselves. We can do certain things that we talked about in the active of uh, nights, but the passive uh, element is where God has to take over. And if we continue to seek self, even while God is trying to work on us, then we will not be availing ourselves of this act of merciful love. The imitation also says, whosoever is not ready to suffer all things and to stand resigned to the will of his beloved, our Lord, is not worthy to be called a lover. Of course, that's almost directly out of... Uh, The gospel, you know, he who will not deny himself and take up his cross cannot be my disciple. Those are right from the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And, you know, we sometimes read these things, Francis, and I think um, we we sort of, you know, drift over them or um, uh, allow them to hit our ear, but not our heart. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't really want to hear that challenging message of deny myself and, And pick up my cross. But those are exactly the words, the counsel that the Lord himself has given us as necessary components to abandonment to merciful love.
1: So those two points that we were highlighting, this humility and this abandonment to God. The question then rises, if if we're able to do that, does that mean that if we offer ourselves as a real victim of love, will we ever fall? Will, Will we ever grow weak? At least on those two points. And and Therese is like, no. Um, She says, true. Um, One may fall, okay? One may not always be faithful, but love, knowing how to draw profit from all, quickly consumes whatever may displease Jesus, leaving naught but profound and humble peace in the depths of the soul. I'm thinking of St. Paul in this because that great grace where he's knocked off his horse you know his whole uh, projection in life uh, was changed uh so you know that's an instance of a big fall but what a great prophet was drawn from that
0: yeah and there's something very important in this language i think that we want to make sure to draw out um, leaving not but profound humble peace in the depths of the soul this experience we have to remember comes from our interior. It isn't something that is imposed on us. It is not something that is, uh, you know, sort of from the external. But it is something that is within us. The Holy Spirit resides within us. And the Lord wants to encounter the Spirit that is within us and ignite, if you will, that flame of love that is within us. But it's an interior disposition, as we discussed, and an interior experience of the Lord. That consumes all of those what would otherwise be obstacles uh, to this encounter. And if
1: one does fall, um, St. Therese would counsel them to um, just uh, have recourse to a sincere humility. You know, uh, she progresses in fervor because love is going to find in her the empty vessel it seeks. So God is going to be lifted up. And, you know, sometimes we we benefit more as a result of a fall than we would have had we not fallen, because that's how merciful the good God is, not anything on our account.
0: And we should take great consolation in that very fact that you just stated so well, Francis, that we think sometimes our falls move us backward. The falls will come, that it's inevitable. But it isn't, in fact, the truth that they move us backward. They may very well move us forward. Now, it doesn't mean we go out and sin, but it does mean that we should accept that merciful love, when it heals the wound of sin, doesn't just cover it over. It heals it, and actually, as we know from medicine, that point of, uh, encounter, if you will, of wound within the body, is actually strengthened beyond what it was yeah. before the wound occurred.
1: And and God draws profit from them all. You know, in this catechism, um, they quote a saint, but they didn't name who it was. Uh, but it's the quote of the saint is, in an act of love, even though not felt, all is repaired and more than repaired. So, um we can make good of our mess exactly. if we turn to the Lord. And, you know, don't turn to yourself because, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you were going to work on humility and abandonment into the Lord's arms. But the Lord will make good of your mess if you just work with him. Okay.
0: Well, in the few minutes we have, let's see if we can finish this next question. We do want to try to get through the, the rest here in our conversation today. So what then will be the means by which the victim of love may attain to sanctity? Sanctity or sanctification are being made holy. The sole victim depends solely and in all circumstances on love, hoping for all virtue from the infinite power and liberality, that's generosity, of this merciful love to which she has given herself without any reservation. She knows, as um, Therese has already stated, her own inability to ascend by her own efforts, even the first steps of the ladder of sanctity. But, she adds, she also knows whom she has believed. This is actually from Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians twelve thirty one, And she repeats to our Lord, Therese does, according to the formula of her act of oblation. She says,
1: I long to be a saint, but I know that I am powerless, and I implore you, O oh my God, to be yourself my sanctity. All our good deeds are stained in your sight. I desire, therefore, to be clothed with your own justice and to receive from your love the eternal possession of you.
0: This reminds me of that work that we're both familiar with, Empty Hands, right? Mm -hmm. Therese said she wanted to uh, arrive uh, with empty hands, not anything uh, of her own merits, though she certainly could make an argument for uh, having acquired many in her. Well, she life. gave them
1: away to the Blessed Mother right That's away. <laughs> right. She gave them
0: all away. And she wants only the Lord's. How does that happen to answer this question before we break? What then will be the means by which the victim of love may attain to sanctity? It is the sacrifice of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It is His sacrifice. It is His merit that will be the means of our sanctification. And so. In giving ourselves over as victims, we lose nothing. We gain everything. We gain the merit of Jesus Christ.
1: And I take this little phrase, be yourself, my sanctity. And I repeat that prayer a lot. (laughs) I take it from Therese. So I encourage you to pray it.
0: A great way to bring us to the break. A reminder, you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We'll be right back. Hey, Christian voice in your home. We're now returning to the show, Carmelite Conversations. Mark and Francis.
1: Well, welcome back to Carmelite Conversations. Mark and I are talking about uh, St. Therese's merciful act, no, act of oblation to merciful love. (laughs) Get that in the right direction. And that's of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower. And so we were just getting ready to talk about um, uh, the love and what are the actions that a person who makes this oblation along with St. Therese, you know, what happens after making that? Uh, Prayer. What do we do? And so I'll turn it over to you, Mark. And
0: what nourishes it? That's the important part. So we have a little idea what we're supposed to do in the active. We talked about that. Um, You know, making those sacrifices, if you will, the little ones. uh, And the passive, where the Lord uh, engages us. And the means by which we attain sanctity. So what help can we expect? How are we going to be nourished in this process well? The divine source from whence the soul victim will draw life should be no surprise to us Catholics. It will be Holy Communion, the Eucharist. It's the unrivaled invention of merciful love of our loving God, ever eager to intermingle with our human misery. But her act of oblation, St. Therese's that is, she desired to see this mysterious and incomparable fusion prolonged and intensified during every moment of her life saying to God with a humble daring,
1: With confidence I call upon you to come and take possession of my soul. I cannot receive you in Holy Communion as often as I would, but Lord, are you not almighty? Remain in me as in the tabernacle. Never leave your little victim.
0: So this is a very important part. Unfortunately, I don't know that we'll be able to do it justice, but... Um, This idea that the Lord is within us at all times, obviously, uh, perhaps in the most potent way after receiving communion, uh, but God is constantly with us. And in order to affect this intimacy, this encounter with God, this uh, uh, act of oblation and the relationship, it's necessary for us to be constantly aware of his presence. You know, so much of our day is distracted and and uh, uh, draws us off into unproductive thought patterns or um, entertainments, which you know can be taken or left, quite frankly, more often than not. Uh, but what Therese brilliantly understood for such a young person to have grasped the depth of this relationship is quite amazing. And in fact, even John Paul II drew from uh, Therese's own experience of this. But this depth of encounter and this consistency of the awareness of the potency of God dwelling within her is what was so powerful about Therese's um, writing and her personal experience.
1: And this part of her prayer remained in me as in a tabernacle. This is her spiritual communion. And we can make spiritual communions any time of the day. And so she's asking the Lord to stay with her And never leave her. And we can pray that too. She's given us the example.
0: Well, so let's move on and and discuss a little bit the external sign um, that will um,
1: indicate the sincerity of this life, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, If you're going to live this out, what does it look like? How How will we
0: know? Exactly. How will we know? Well, by contrast, uh, an increase in real fraternal charity, this is the inevitable effect of the sincere love of God love of our neighbor should that surprise any of us <laughs> and it isn't just a love that we say okay well now i'm going to put up with you uh now i'm going to endure these uh, uh eccentricities of your personality that perhaps frustrated me no what would affect uh, this change is a genuine um, uh, modification to our reaction to those things that may previously have annoyed us or mm-hmm. or frustrated us or brought us to uh moments of fear or doubt or Um, you know, a sense of absence of the Lord. All of these begin to uh, be minimized in us. We sense this fraternal charity, this confident, uh, consistent intimacy with the Lord. St. Therese, in fact, confides to us that it was after her oblation to merciful love that she received the grace, in her words, to understand in its full extent the great precept of charity.
1: And she continues, I made it my study above all else, to love God. And so should we, right? Mm -hmm. She goes on, And it is in loving him that I gradually discovered the secrets of his new commandment, that we love one another as Jesus himself loved us. And she did this. She practiced it day after day. She says, The more united I am to Jesus, the more also do I love all my sisters.
0: Well, after her, the true victim of the Holocaust, delivered up to the consuming fire of divine love, could say that would be us. Since that sweet flame consumes my heart, I now run with delight, O my God, in the way of your new commandment. So what Therese says is the mark of sincerity of this transformation, at least beginning within us, is that we do, in fact, begin to spend more of our time thinking about God, literally thinking about our Lord, um, asking him this simple question, Lord, what would please you? What might I do that would please you? Lord, am I pleasing you? Lord, was that pleasant? Was that pleasing you, the way I treated that person, the way I spent uh, the last hour of my day? Whatever it is, are we genuinely concerned with wanting to please the beloved? Is that the centermost um, disposition of our heart? That no matter what we're doing, whether it's caring for our children, executing the responsibilities of our job, uh, um, you know, perhaps working out and, and gaining some, uh, you know, physical benefit, but are we doing all of that with the Lord as the focus of it, with the Lord in the center of everything we're doing? That's what she contends is the true mark. Uh, of an indication that we're moving deeper into this relationship.
1: You know, Mark, I was thinking about this today, that St. Therese wanting to console the heart of Jesus, and I'm like, console the heart of Jesus? Where did I hear that? You know, and of course, Our Lady of Fatima, uh, in those uh, apparitions to the three shepherd children, if if you uh, read into uh, the lives of Jacinta and Lucia, And Francisco, uh, especially Francisco, wanted to console the heart of Jesus so he'd go off to pray by himself. Uh, So uh, it's it's like this this idea of consoling the heart of Jesus was flourishing and blossoming and and becoming more prominent. So now a person who makes this act of oblation, along with St. Therese, You might ask, well, does this mean that now my life is going to be full of suffering? (laughs) And, well, the answer is not necessarily, right? (laughs) Um, Because what's the aim of the act of oblation to merciful love? It's to love, which is the most excellent of gifts. So Therese abandons herself to the merciful love of the good God. That is to say, love tender and compassionate without any other desire than to love him and make others love him uh, without thinking of herself or what might happen to her. It is the child who surrenders herself to the will of her father to suffer or enjoy according to the good pleasure of his love. And this is a refrain that we hear in many of our saints return love for love and, and, Our own motto in Carmel is to know God so that he may be known. And I like to add to love God so that he may be loved.
0: (laughs) And it may, to be fair, uh, Francis. obviously there may be suffering, right? Because there's suffering in the heart of Jesus. And if we are availing ourselves, disposing our hearts uh, to receive Jesus, to love Jesus, to extend um, uh, love to him in all of our acts, there certainly may very well be suffering. There was great suffering in the life of Therese. It's not as um, uh, perhaps well-known as some of the, the, um, the, the other saints who we can identify uh, the physical difficulties that they went through or some of the, the psychological battles that they had to encounter. But in Therese's own life, uh, suffering certainly marked uh, the latter s- stages of her life.
1: But you know, if you love... Just like a parent, if your kid is hurt or is being bullied and you're, you're the parent and you're going in there, um, You even if you have to suffer uh, humiliation or attack or whatever, your love carries you through. Right. So in that sense, suffering it becomes sweet right. because your love is so strong. So we don't fear the suffering um, and we, we're not... Uh, looking for pleasures or sufferings when we make this act of oblation. We're we're there to love God, and then whatever comes, we know He has our best interest at heart. And so whatever happens to us, good, bad, or indifferent, is going to be from His heart to ours, and we want to just return it back.
0: (laughs) Right, so it leads us actually ideally to the next question. Was it St. Therese's view then, her desire, her disposition, to to have something more perfect than the desire for suffering. It isn't suffering for suffering's sake. So then, was there something more perfect that she desired? Of course, the answer is yes. In fact, from the very first lines of the act of oblation, she says very clearly, I desire, oh my God, to accomplish your will perfectly, whatever that might be. At the end of her life, of course, our saint confirms her opinion on this very point by stating, I know not how to ask anything eagerly, save the perfect accomplishment of God's designs upon my soul. I no longer thirst for either suffering or death. So you see here, uh, she may have in the early stages have expressed a desire for suffering itself because she saw that as a means of identifying herself with the suffering Christ. But now she says, I no longer thirst for suffering or death. Long did I call upon them as the harbingers of joy. Now, however, it is the spirit of self-abandonment alone. That guides me. No other compass do I have. In fact, on her deathbed, she repeats, I do not like one thing more than the other. Whatever God prefers and chooses for me, that is what I like the best. It is what he does that I love. This is a very mature uh, and highly developed um, state of spiritual union with God. It's the only thing, in fact, that could really avail ourselves, uh, allow us to avail ourselves of this. We could state these words, Francis. we could pray these words ourselves and say this is what we genuinely desire, as uh, Therese began her own prayer, but it ultimately is God's work to finish this uh, uh, transformation in us and to be raised to this point where she says, it is what He does that I love, um, is not something we can attain by ourselves.
1: So, on that account, that makes the victim, you know, she's offering herself as a victim to merciful love. Does that mean she's a happy victim? Well, yes. Why? Because she has abandoned herself into uh, the hands of the Lord. And, and this is the fruit of love. It's, it's sweetness even in the suffering. And I was thinking today, you know, this is one thing that we were taught, uh, I think, in John of the Cross where the evil one cannot join, and I think Teresa of said it too, in the Sixth Mansion, the evil one cannot join sweetness and pain together. And yet the Lord can. And this is where we're talking about it, that even in any suffering that would come along, A person who has offered themselves as a victim soul to God's merciful love they find it sweet because it's something that cost and they're willing to give it because their love you know love makes it sweet so love indeed makes sweet that which is most bitter doubtless it, it has its times of trial as well as its times of enjoyment but it always possesses the singular privilege of being able to transform sorrow, into joy, a non-sensitive joy perhaps, so we're not necessarily feeling this, but it's superior to all others. This is what St. Therese had experienced when she used to sing, yes, suffering born with love is happiness most pure. My joy is to love suffering.
0: Yeah, it's that perfect joy, uh, this exquisite flower of love we might refer to it as, that she foresees as the lot of the happy victims of this legion that she's calling for. This she wishes to bequeath, she says, to her sisters as the last pledge of her fraternal tenderness. In her own words, she says, I do not promise you that you will be spared trials, she told them before she departed for heaven. But I shall make you love them, and you will come to say with me, Thou hast given me, O Lord, delight in thy doings. So it is the Lord's will being done within her, even this consuming fire that is consuming, of course, all the dross, everything that is not uh, part of uh, her expression of love, anything that serves as an impediment. The removal of it, painful though it might be, gives her the complete joy of knowing that she is doing what it is that God has asked her to do and that what she's doing is very pleasing to him.
1: So can we conclude then by making this act of oblation to God's merciful love that we will obtain true happiness in this life by offering ourselves as a victim soul to his merciful love? And the answer is yes, because the soul victim or victim soul, that's the way I like to put it, uh, calling down upon herself the infinite tenderness of the good God has everything to gain in interior peace and joy. For divine love invading a human heart cannot but bring to it all the germs of happiness. And moreover, the act of oblation in surrendering the soul to the mercy of God's merciful love guarantees that this love, quote, will have compassion on her weakness, will treat her at every turn throughout all the vicissitudes of her exile with tenderness and mercy. And those that's Therese saying that, which is a sovereign liberality.
0: Again, liberality, generosity, uh, uh, a giving heart. St. Therese proclaimed uh, it in the last trial of her life, which on uh, her own uh, avowal took from her all feeling of enjoyment. Never did I so feel that the Lord is sweet and merciful and already gone down into the anguish and shadow of death. She still repeated like a song of victory. No, in her words, no. I am not sorry for having surrendered myself to divine love. On the contrary. This was Therese's life. This was her call. Uh, She said she had found her mission, and that was to be love in the heart of the church. And so everything that led her deeper into this experience, deeper into this encounter uh, of love, was for her not just beneficial, uh, not just meritorious, But it was the very experience of joy. I don't know if we can imagine, Francis, for our listeners' benefit, uh, what it might be like to be fully engaged as Therese was in knowing that we are doing precisely what it was that we were called into being to do. Can you imagine the experience of that? This is what I was called into being to do. This is why God created me. This is the purpose all of... Uh, my existence is is wrapped up in what it is that I'm doing now. And for Therese, this pinnacle moment came in her 20, 21st year of life uh, where she um, realized that she was, in fact, completely fulfilling the purpose for which God had created her. But we're all called to that purpose. We're, we're not all called to be Therese's. We're not all called to um, have the individual Uh, encounter or have the manifestation of it in the way that she did, but we were all called into being for a purpose, and God has created us, he's called us to himself, and the degree to which we respond to that with fidelity, we too can experience what Therese is speaking about here.
1: So in this act of merciful love, uh, we're talking about dying of love, right? So one might think that, well, if you're a victim soul and you want to die of love, then You're going to die in transports of joy, right? No, not right. (laughs) Because even though uh, being a victim soul, there's a a fundamental disposition of peace and loving confidence, yet it it does not suppress sufferings, right? And, And Therese really zeroed in on this by saying, you know, our Lord died in anguish on the cross, yet His was the most glorious death, of love ever known so to die of love is not to die in transports of joy and so she was telling her sister you know don't worry you know do not be troubled if I suffer much and if you see in me no sign of happiness at the moment of my death our Lord died indeed a victim of love and see the agony he endured you know so um, but of course God was uh, uh, putting his seal on Therese. So she, she appeared to die. And then that last second, it was about the space of a credo. (laughs) Um, we saw a a kind of an ecstasy, uh, where, where she's telling God, I love you. And so that was her, uh, last moments.
0: Yeah. These sufferings that, that come at the last moments are dispensed to each and every soul in a different way. Uh, the divine wisdom knows best But they are nevertheless made lighter for the victim of love by the certainty that he or she in whom she has blindly trusted will grant her courage in proportion to her sufferings. Therese says, I have no fear. She has a right to repeat that. If my sufferings increase, he will at the same time increase my patience. And
1: doesn't that give us hope that no matter what we go through, God is there with us, equipping us to get through it. If we just keep our focus on him rather than ourself, and that's the problem. So then what is this meaning of the expression to die of love? Well, what it means is that at the final hour, God will let the ocean of his infinite tenderness flow in torrents on the victim of Holocaust. Thus will he prepare her in an instant. And these, this is from the words of trust He will prepare her in an instant to appear before him and will suddenly break the slender web of her life under the pressure of his love. So love, you know, we, we often study uh, of the life of the saint and we'll say they died of love even though they had some kind of disease that took their physical body but their spirit was uh, their, their heart was so expanding and so full of love that it was love that actually took them over
0: <laughs> Yeah, because it is the hour of extreme misery for those who are dying of love for all the children of Adam this hour of distress this last moment of our life will appeal to the merciful love of the Heavenly Father and cause an outpouring of his infinite tenderness, as Francis just described it, beyond all measure on the little victim, to the point of transforming her or him into itself in an eternal embrace. This death, holy of love, magnificent conclusion to an earthly existence, is not necessarily felt or externally manifested. There may be no outward sign of joy, or even a full consciousness of devotion to it, But how may we not infallibly believe it to take place when the faithful victim shall have hoped for it from the mercy of God, the good God, for he is magnificent in his rewards, able to do all things more abundantly than we desire or understand. That's a direct quote from Ephesians 3.20. And to hope for greater things from him is to glorify him. And that's a quote directly from St. John of the Cross. So giving ourselves over, Um, This is a continual experience. It's a lifetime commitment, as Therese uh, made clear. But what is most important here is the acknowledgement that God, in his infinite mercy, will accept the sacrifice. He will accept the oblation. And he will consume that oblation. Again, the physical manifestation of it is insignificant. What we know is that this is God's promise. And so if we, too, commit ourselves to this sacrifice in the last hours of our life, we will know the same experience.
1: Okay, so to be a true victim of love, do we have to recite this act of oblation frequently, the one that St. Therese wrote? Well, um, no, but it's in this sense because Therese assures us that prayer is an outburst from the heart, uh, a simple glance toward heaven. She also says in the act itself, she says, "'I desire, O my beloved, at every heartbeat to renew this oblation so her she's counting on her heart to be the sign of her renewing this prayer to renew this oblation an infinite number of times so that doesn't mean that we have to be reciting it uh, of course when we Uh, do pray it uh, you know we get more familiar with it and different aspects really affect us more so uh, the full donation of the victim of love is therefore above all as we said earlier a disposition of the heart and it's not dependent then on how frequently we, we do pray the prayer
0: and nevertheless the holy church does invite the faithful not alone to realize this act of oblation also to assimilate the thoughts and even the words of St. Therese. For this purpose, she has enriched with precious indulgences the text of the prayer. Francis mentioned this earlier, which burst forth from the heart of the saint under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'll just say I would encourage our listeners, as I said beginning, to go ahead and uh, read Therese's prayer, but incorporate it for yourself. And so if you want to make some modification to the language, certainly encourage you to do that. But I'm going to ask, Francis if you wouldn't mind reading this section of indulgenced portion of the prayer.
1: Well, I just want to point out there's 300 days indulgence each time the faithful recite the act of oblation with a fervent and contrite heart. But the plenary indulgence comes um, under the normal conditions for those who have daily recited the act throughout the month. And that is from July 31st, 1923 from Rome. And I have the uh, paragraphs that are in the part of the prayer that are indulgenced. And so that will be our closing prayer. So let us sign ourselves in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. That my life may be one act of perfect love. I offer myself as victim of Holocaust to your merciful love, imploring you to consume me unceasingly and to let the flood tide of infinite tenderness pent up in you flow into my soul so that I may become a martyr of your love, O oh my God. May this martyrdom, after having prepared me to appear before you, break life's web at last and may my soul take its flight unhindered to the internal embrace of your merciful love. I desire, O my beloved, at every heartbeat to renew this oblation an infinite number of times till the shadows fade away and I can tell you my love eternally face to face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
0: I just want to remind our listeners, this is from the Little Catechism of the Act of Oblation of St. Therese of the Child Jesus. You can find the prayer and each of the questions and responses that uh, Francis and I have been going through over the last couple of weeks in this wonderful little pamphlet, really, by Sophia Institute Press. You can also find it in the works of uh, ICS publications entitled The Story of a Soul, Therese's Own Autobiography. And as Francis just encouraged us, um, let's begin to pray this prayer. Make it our own. Make this act of oblation our own. Well, in closing, I want to remind you that you've been listening to Carmelite Conversations on Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. Until we're with you again next week, God bless.